<laughs> That's my Sid James laugh there. I can uh, I can do Tommy Cooper as well. <laughs> oh, you know, that's uncanny. One can almost see the fares. You're Ed Rin. You were script associate on that last but one series of the Frankie Howard show, weren't you? Did you have to write all the oohs and ahs in? Well, we didn't get as far as discussing semantics. He didn't like any of the material. I suppose it wasn't the smartest move, giving him shut that door as a catchphrase. No, no, no wonder you were the only writer in television history if Frank never chased around the dressing room. Yeah, it doesn't get much more desperate than that. <laughs> <laughs> you ought to be getting this down on paper, Ed. There's a show in it. Yeah, the, uh, the best comedy's always about losers. Yes, that's how he's called. Des Mara. Desperate, you see? Uh, yeah. Comedy writer who never makes anyone laugh. Yes, go on, Ed. Go over there and write it down. Yeah, you can have it for nothing. No, thank you. You can have it for nothing. Oh, can I have it for nothing too, matron? Uh. Goompod. My name is Tyler Adams. This week, it's a slight departure. Um, one of my all-time favorite radio comedies is the tremendous Ed Redden's Week, which has been playing on Radio 4 since, I think, about 2005. Uh, its titular character is, I would argue, one of the greatest British comedy creations of the last 20 years or so. Uh, Ed Redden is described as an author, pipe smoker, consummate fair dodger, and master of the abusive email. The man who co-created the show with Andrew Nichols and plays Ed himself is my guest this week, Christopher Douglas, um, who I've, I've wanted to have on the show for a long, long time. And um, he finally uh, agreed after sort of weeks, months of badgering by me. Um, the thing is, Christopher's not a massive fan of the goons, uh, although he, he likes them enough, but uh, he was keen to come on and talk to me about radio comedy in general, um, including the goons. And obviously, I was interested in finding out more about you know his own involvement in the medium of radio comedy. It's a great conversation, and uh, there were actually a couple of moments when the uh, normal genial tones of Christopher gave way to very slight snatches of the curmudgeonly Ed. So I hope you enjoy the chat. No, I'm not here to blow smoke up your fundament, but I've I've been a big fan of Ed Reardon's week since oh. since the early days. Really, I mean, I, I won't. I'll just tell you a little story because I associate first listening to Ed Reardon's week with my son, my son who's now sixteen, um, when he was very little. So it would have been sort of two thousand and seven, two thousand and eight, something like that. Um, when I would put him to bed, you know, read him a story, and but but I was not allowed to leave the room until he was asleep and he would know he would hear the slightest you know if I tried to move out of the room surreptitiously he would hear and he would be instantly awake you know so I had to wait until he was in a, in a deep slumber so to you know that could be very boring so what I would do is I would have my headphones and I would listen to episodes of Ed Redden and it was fantastic but I would have you know I'd have to, have to stifle my 
chuckles, of course. <laughs> I, I was going to say, I thought you were going to go on to say it was ideal listening under the circumstances. <laughs> we're un, uh, very unlikely to laugh out loud. <laughs> I'm glad you said <laughs> Can I just say... You spun it at the last moment in my favour. <laughs> yeah, well, I was... Um, we were doing a, doing a barbecue the other day. We had a brief window of sunshine last week and um i decided to have a barbecue for mother's day and i was listening to one of your episodes actually while i was doing it and i, and I laughed out i'm not again this is not meant to sort of you know make you blush but i laughed out loud it was an older episode the one where ed is on an archaeological dig oh yeah and, yeah. and he thinks he's in with a chance with the, yeah. the 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 leader of the dig and he nips to the gents and he goes to the vending machine mega pleasure diablo Nothing in corduroy, I see. Oh. <laughs> oh, I forgot that. There was something about it. he put he was on an archaeological dig and he'd found a uh, you know a, a Roman or Saxon coin or something and he uh, that was the only money he had. <laughs> yes. So he put it in the vending machine. It was worth sort of fifty thousand pounds or something. Yes, that's right. That's right. Um, one of the things, obviously, I was doing research in terms of your career, and I appreciate that Ed is a more recent sort of success recent relatively speaking but you were in the Aneden line for 30 odd episodes which I didn't realize uh I don't think it was quite as many as that but it, it, it um I, I think I was in four series yes from 1977 to 80 when that when it ended I think yeah mm-hmm. and um yes it was ve- I mean <laughs> it was in black and white when it began and um it moved to color by the time I joined but um, it was it was pretty popular Sunday night viewing, I think, and particularly so in Scandinavia. And there was another place, they, they, Bulgaria. That's right. They, they, either they, I don't know whether they liked it or whether they, you know they just had to have it. But um, it, it, it was very popular there. It was the misery of my childhood because <laughs> because I grew up in New Zealand in the late 70s early 80s and it was it was a it was shown on tvnz and my mother my late mother was obsessed by it she she it was her favorite program and i can even to this day i can remember the theme music very distinctly because i wasn't because we you know one tv in the house if the Eden line was on i couldn't watch whatever was on the other side so i had to watch that but i think i think my mother was rather taken with um what's his name peter gilmore's side whiskers Peter Gilmore, yes, yes, he was a big heartthrob, yeah, yeah. Mm. So that's why I, I dropped that in. <laughs> yeah. Also, you were in Pender's Fen. Yes, yes, that that was a little bit before. In fact, uh, Pender's Fen was the first job I did for the BBC. It was 1972, I think, and directed by the the late, very great Alan Clark, and uh, written by David Rudkin, great David Rudkin. And um, it was one of those things that that. In those days, you could sort of sneak through the system and get these rather challenging pieces made. Um, a, a very um, distinguished producer called David Rose was a, a, a master at getting that done. And they would often be done through Birmingham. Mm. And so that's how Pender's Fen was done. They managed to get it somehow past the gatekeepers. And it, it is the most extraordinary piece of work there's a, there's a a, um, a movement now uh, it, it sort of comes under the heading of folk horror so mm. that's only that term's only just come into existence it, it was uh, but it didn't seem to be like anything else to me 
Um, and yet it was it was sort of about everything. And a most a most strange and and uh, memorable piece of work. And um, the Whitechapel Gallery uh, had a showing of it, I think, the year before last. And um, it was uh, with an audience. Hmm. And they asked me uh, to take part as one of the sort of not many people still going who who were in it. And um, and I said, well, I shouldn't really be on the. I only had about sort of 10 lines or something, so I shouldn't really be on the, the panel. But they said, well, in that case, would you interview David Rudkin? So I was very honoured and, of course, absolutely delighted to do that because I'm you know, such a big fan of his work. And so David Rudkin and Spencer Banks, who played the lead in yes. yep. Fen, mm. um, I, I sort of interviewed the, the pair of them at the Whitechapel Gallery, and it was, um, it was quite, quite a... Um, Amazing event, really. It was a lot of people turned out to to see this this masterpiece, Curiosity. It's a remarkable piece of work. Mm. Um, bring it up to date. You you won the uh, Tenniswood Award last year for um, Tristram Shandy. Yes, yes. I was I was a bit surprised they made that as well because um, it it was conceived as as a sort of uh, because Tristram Shandy is 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 a sort of satire, in part on on publishing as it existed mm. in the mid eighteenth century, and um, uh, you know it's uh, novels were were quite still quite new then. Yes, and um, in fact, many people thought there was only one really, uh, um, which was Don Quixote, mm. and uh, there were some other ones, but you know the feeling was they were not not much good really. And so if you if you wrote a novel, you either had to refer to Don Quixote or honour it in, in some way, mm -hmm. or um, what Lawrence Stern did was sort of completely take the piss out of novels and the and the and publishing and fictional authorship. So I thought when I came to do the play, well, it's so huge, this this novel, you can't really put it in a single radio slot unless you make it, you have the the satirical uh, uh, victim, as it were, is is radio rather than um, mid eighteenth century publishers and and fiction. So it, it was a satire on radio. So I mean, not surprisingly, it was quite difficult to persuade them to do it. But they said yeah at the third time of asking, they they said yes, and so we, we did it. It was quite uh, difficult to make because, of course, it was right in the middle of right in the start of the lockdown recordings when yes. the the yeah. mechanics of it were, were really quite um, uh, uh, sort of makeshift. And we were, we, you know, we're all sort of um, working that way for the first time. Absolutely, I can imagine it would be. I mean, how did you do the, because the, the thing I read most of Tristram Shandy years ago, the thing I remember, and I think most people would remember is the black page. Um, yes, that, how did that, you, that's how, right. How yes. did you get that over on radio? Uh, well, I, I, I did try, um, but of course, Silence on on radio is not um, is not that great, and even if you you sort of acknowledge that, um, it it's it still didn't. But but the the, the I did um, I suppose I satirised the idea of a radio show that had nothing to say sometimes, mm. um, so they they sort of ground to a halt a bit. Um, but that that was the nearest I got to the blank page. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, no, it was very enjoyable to do yeah. and in, in fact that that's sort of rather more what i'm 
what I've been doing in re recent years is, is drama, sort of one-off things, um, and, and less of the of the sitcoms, because as well as Ed, there were, there were a couple of others, uh, Beauty yes. of Britain, which we did, we did three series of that, and then there's another one that was been going for a long time, that was about this dreadful cricketer called Dave Podmore, mm -hmm. and... Um, I mean, still, you know, it's, we're still doing Ed, and um, um, but I've I've sort of uh, also managed to get the um, the one-off plays going adaptations. Yeah, you've been working on something recently. Is it, are you in a position to say what that is, or is that still? Yes, I, um, we're we're, we're going to do it quite soon. I think um, it, it's an adaptation of a novel by George Gissing called <laughs> The Odd Women, and it's. Um, and I suppose an early feminist novel written in 1892, the, the two of the main characters run a secretarial school. Mm -hmm. uh, at the time, the, there was uh, business was being carried out for the first time using typewritten documents, contracts and so on. Not only that, but you could, you, you, the, the cables under the Atlantic allowed yes, you yes. to do business for the first time. And so there was this, boom in employment opportunities for stenographers, typists. And um, uh, a lot of them were women. So there, there, were, there was this new area of work for women. Okay. And, um, and, and of course, uh, you know, a lot, a lot of people were against it. A lot of men didn't like it. And women were thought to underprice men. So they were, they were working for less and yeah. therefore doing men out of jobs. And so it's quite a controversial subject at the time. So Gissing, um, he, he knew his sisters ran a school, so he, he knew quite a bit about how that worked. And um, uh, also he knew um, various prominent women who were women suffrage campaigners. Mm. Mm -hmm. And so the two things came together. Okay. And, okay. and uh, it's... it's uh, two love stories, two parallel love stories. Uh, um, but it's very good and it, it's, it's funny as well. But Gissing, because he has these rather grim endings, they nearly all do end grimly. <laughs> um, he has this, this reputation for being a, a depressing writer, but it's only the endings really that are, that are grim. The, the books themselves are, are full of humour and, um, and he's very, you know, a very great writer. Well, uh, obviously, I mean, uh... You know, New Grub Street contains the characters Edwin Reardon and uh, is it Jasper Milvane? The Jasper Milvane, that, that, that's right. I don't think we spell him quite correctly in the, mm. in the Ed Reardon series, but what, what it was a long, long time ago, I, I think more than 30 years ago, that Andrew Nichols, my co writer yeah. and very old friend, um, he, he said, Have you read New Grub Street? And I had, and, and so he put me onto it. And then, um, I don't know, 20 years went by or something, and uh, we're doing a column. Andrew and I were doing a column in The Guardian. Yeah. We had a, re a weekly column written by this dreadful cricketer, fictional cricketer, called Dave Podmore. Yeah. And we've been doing it for, for quite a while, about, about 10 years, I think. And um, The uh, Guardian said, would, would we like to think of a literary equivalent of the dreadful Dave Podmore? And uh, uh, I uh, failed very self-important failed writer so we um came up with a piece for them we you know went back to the office and smashed out sort of 750 words of jokes and we gave him and we just called him ed reardon because we didn't um you know 
refer to New Grub Street in any other way, just, just called him Ed Reardon. Um, and so we sent this piece to The Guardian, uh, who were very, very enthusiastic about the idea uh, initially, and we sent them this piece and then heard nothing back. So we, we wrote to them and said, you know, is, it, is there something you'd like to change? You know, we're quite used to rewriting, so, you know, do say if you mm. want it to be different. And, and we just couldn't get an answer out of them. So we, we thought, you know, it often happens. <laughs> so, yeah. and usually when there's no answer, it, it, it's because people, it's not people are trying to be rude, really. It's just that they can't think what to say. And they don't want to come across as either cruel or stupid. Yeah. So they don't say anything That's at all. It. And it's, yeah. it's remarkably common. Anyway, mm. we didn't worry too much about it and, you know, got on with other things. And then there was a there was a, a Christmas party at the BBC and a, a producer, yeah, young producer called Simon Nichols sidled up to us and said, have you got anything? And so the, the bottom drawer mm. creaked open and <laughs> out came this, this piece written supposedly by failed writer Ed Ridden. And he said, put, you know, do that as a treatment and I'll, I'll put it in. And they immediately liked it. And we were, I mean, we were, we were on the air within, within a year, I think. Perhaps wow. just yeah. over a year. It was very quick. I um yeah, because I was <clears throat> preparing for this, I agonized for about an hour or so to try and describe Ed to people who obviously haven't heard the show. Um, but I was I was trying to draw comparisons. It's so lazy, isn't it? Trying to draw comparisons with other classic British comedy characters, um, um which Ed would no doubt dismiss as an asinine pursuit. Anyway, um, <laughs> the best I could come up with, and I don't know how you feel about this, Ed is, is a sort of archetypal opportunistic failure. Um, he's sort of often on the make. He's living off past glories. He's he's often railing against the system, which is a little bit like, a bit like Victor Meldrew, I suppose, in some respects. Um, but he's also very self-aware. And, and aware of his failings and quite open about his faults and his vices and can be quite shameless. And he's, you know, he's always pinching food and stuff like that from functions. It, yes. I, th I think that's right. And actually it's very useful that, that, that he is so open about it um, and um, useful to us as, as writers. And, and also uh, another thing, which we didn't really spot for quite a few years until somebody pointed it out. He has no self-pity. And it never occurred to us, but he's absolutely right. And, mm. and having no self-pity is, is quite appealing uh, because we all, you know, most of us all feel <laughs> sorry for ourselves. But I think he, the, the, you know, with comic characters that run a long time, you, you need several things to, to go for. You, the, the character needs to be in conflict with the world, with the physical world and with uh, other people and, their immediate circle mm. um, and also they, they sort of need to be in conflict with themselves to some extent that, that they, they keep repeating a pattern of behavior that prevents them getting what they want and it, you don't absolutely have to have those things but if you want to write a lot of episodes it's, it's very useful mm. and, and we we sort of hit on that by accident I think that he it, it, you know he was he was his own worst enemy and, and you know, enemy uh, had many other enemies as well. Um, and that seemed to be quite useful. And so we don't, we, we don't really run out of plots. I mean, people might get 
fed up with it and, and, and we won't be allowed to do it anymore. But, but we, we don't really run out of ideas because we've, we've got such a clear idea of the character. All, all we really need to do is, is put him in a, a, a vaguely topical situation or there might be something that's, that's happened to Andrew or myself that we, we recognise as a potential story. But mainly, mainly we, we just uh, read the papers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know if you've read Martin Amos's The Information, um, which was... No, I haven't, no. Mid-90s, it was the book that he... I think he got the biggest advance in history at that time, and he managed to get new teeth as a result oh, for of his it. teeth. Yes, I remember yes. that, yes, yes. Um, yeah. But this, the central character is this failed author. Uh, he's a 40-year-old book reviewer, um, editor of a, of a very small... Oh, is, is, he the, is he the ghostwriter? Yes, I, was yes thinking, I have read that. Have yes, read that. Yeah. and he's yeah. he's 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 desperately jealous of his more successful yes. former friend who's um who writes books, but they're very fluffy, and uh, he's been a phenomenal success in the literary world for writing what Richard Toll thinks is Drek, essentially. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so I see aspects of Ed in that. By the way. I've noticed that there is a there was a book published in in 2014 called Who Would Fardles Bear? No, really? Yes, <laughs> yes. Um, a novel by someone called Sam Amato, apparently. <laughs> well, I, if I, I, yes, I suppose if I, I didn't feel sorry for him, I should probably sue him. <laughs> <laughs> Just in case people don't know that that is that was that was Ed's oh, one yeah. one brush with success. Yes, yes, it got turned into a film. Yes, yes, that's right. And that, that's how we, yeah. But I, I mean, it it it's not. Yeah, the failed writer is not a, not a new idea by no. any means. And uh, well, uh, Edwin Reed and the, the antihero of New Grub Street. You know, that was eighteen ninety one. That was that was written. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Oh, Lawrence sure. Stern. Yeah. yeah. Wednesday. Rather like Graham Greene working his passage by running guns from Nicaragua to Liberia or Spain or wherever it was, I too used my native cunning to hitch a lift back from Tring. I realised that in order to further my promising relationship with Dr Elaine Drysdale, I was playing a dangerous game, weaving a web of deceit by claiming to perform a one-man show about Graham Greene rather than merely blowing a jug for the greater good of Jazz Milvane. And I wouldn't even be doing that if I didn't get my teeth fixed pronto. Ah! Uh. There's no more chewing gum either, Elgar. Ah, rat. Of course, Martin Amis only has to write his name on the steamed-up bathroom window of his Tuscan palazzo for some 12-year-old publisher to offer him half a million quid to get a set of bespoke choppers. But out here in the real world, in order to earn the price of an easily chewable meal, a writer has to lecture insubordinate pensioners every Thursday at the University of the Third Age. So, yeah, so, so radio comedy obviously has been a large part of your of your career and I wanted to just talk to you about obviously we've talked about your part in it but I want to talk to you about your thoughts in terms of radio comedy in general find out what you think works what doesn't work what I don't know revolutions or evolutions there have been in the medium over the last I suppose if we if we exclude Itmar in the wartime years and the mostly sort of variety-based comedy of the 40s you could argue that sort of well British radio comedy began in the fifties, really. Yeah, I, I think that's I think that's right. Yes, I think there was a there was a a, a, a turning point after after the war, really. And I, I I think we always like to divide the 
country, don't we? We always and it sort of seemed to me that the country did divide a bit. You were either Hancock or all the goons. Mm. Um, and though I'm sure there were lots of, lots of people who enjoyed both, but I, I think also what what was interesting, what what sort of fired that new wave of uh, scripted comedy was um, the it, during the war there were there were these entertainment organisations. There, there was SEMA and then ENSA that was sort of trying to do legitimate theatre. And then um, because of the need for uh, entertainment anywhere of any kind, just to take people's minds off things, and Vera Lynn couldn't go everywhere, <laughs> they, they came up with this um, idea called Stars in Battle Dress, mm. which, which enabled, which, which used regular serving soldiers. Um, so it meant they could, they, the entertainment could take place sort of right up to the, front line yeah which um ensa um tours weren't, weren't able to to get that far you know it was thought to be too dangerous but stars in battle dress you know these were actually fighting soldiers at the time so a lot of the entertainment was incredibly chaotic but it was out of that not not out of ensa or sema that the really big names of of post-war comedy came yeah uh, you know people who had uh, learnt sort of under fairly difficult circumstances to, to write and perform. And it, even though it wasn't really a, a movement uh, as such, it di they did sort of share this, this sort of um, disrespectful, impertinent kind of wild quality. And, and it wasn't really an attack on the, on the officer class, although it, it, it's, in some ways it was. Mm. Um, but it had a, a kind of rebellious streak, and I think there were three. There were three shows that that happened after the war, uh, or may, maybe started during the war, that that were sort of based that, that were based on the services. So there was one called Navy Mixture. I think that's right, Navy mm. Mixture. Mm. And then um, the the Army one was called Stand Easy, mm. and then there was the RAF one, which I think was better known, called um, Much Binding in the Marsh. Yeah. And um, the, even though the, <laughs> the war was over, that, that, that was thought to represent three important um, aspects of, of the post-war experience, the, the three services. Yes. And even though um, yeah, there was always this sort of undercurrent of impertinence and the targets often the sort of stupid officer class, and that really struck a chord with, with audiences at, at, at the time because the world was changing. Uh, I mean, the irony was that the, the, the people who came out of stars in battle dress and then turned professional as, as comics and writers, uh, starting to work for the BBC, they then found that the officer class was running the BBC as well as... Yeah. <laughs> so they, they were stuck with it, so they had to, they had to deal with them again. Well, Harry, Harry Seekham, just on that, Harry Seekham tells a story of he, his commanding officer at one point was Philip Slesser, mm. who the only time he ever spoke to him during his command was to basically give him a bollocking, I believe. And then yeah. several years later, post-war, when Harry's doing Variety, Philip Slesser, I'm not sure, is he, is he MC or presenter or announcer or something? He's, he's in some way... I know the name and I can't quite... Yes, I can't quite remember what it was. Yeah, 
um, and I'm and I, I'm going to sound really ill prepared saying this, but no, but he's he's presenting Harry Seacombe uh, on the radio, I think, and um, describes him as my old army friend. <laughs> and Harry said he sort of came out and kind of gave him a wry smile, as if to yeah. say, you know, yeah, right, mate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He he wrote about it, didn't he? He wrote a novel about about that period of his life. What was it called? Harry Seacombe. Uh, Twice brightly, I think. Yes, he did. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yes. Yeah. yeah, and it's it's quite I mean, a long time since I've read it, but it's sort of just about that that world of gigging around and staying in digs and that you know that that sort of uh, that rather uh, grim time in some ways. He yeah yes, but he was actually quite successful quite yes. quickly. Oh yeah, yeah. Because he was making the equivalent of nearly four grand in today's money. A month at the windmill. Yeah. Um, but he was doing six days. It was it six six shows a day, six days a week, something like that. Yeah, yeah. Shaving. <laughs> yeah, shaving. Yeah. But there, uh, there, there's a very good book um, by uh, Barry Took called "Laughter in the Air" about those years. Mm. And um, well, you, you mentioned the you know the the money he was earning and that uh, um he he I'm, I'm sure he you know done his research and he said that peter sellers was earning uh 750 quid a week i think in in about 1951 52 and um <laughs> that's a lot of money isn't it and a bbc producer uh, so the guy who was producing the, the the shows he was in uh would have earned 700 pounds a year so that was a different kind of relationship from what, what we have now which is is the, the reverse in the you know staff producer at the bbc earned many many times what what the 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 writers and uh, yeah. performers are so it's a, it's a, it's just a completely different world and it um it, it is much more sort of producer-led rather than talent-led, um, as it was perhaps in those days. Well, he was—he was. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure there's some exaggeration on that figure. That seems ludicrous money to be making. Maybe seven hundred. What was it? Seven hundred fifty a month? Maybe would that be right? Well, yeah. uh, uh, no. I mean, it's it, uh, well. I, I'm only just quoting from this book, but uh, but the, yeah. there was, you know, radio was was the big medium, wasn't it, in, in those days? So it. it it, it, um, it that was where the big money was. But he was he was never not working from the middle of forty eight when he began on Showtime, which was his first radio appearance. It just, it just snowballed his his mm. he just he was on everything to the point where he was like James Corden was for a period of time, you know, yeah. everywhere. Yeah. Um, producers were sort of being told, you know, lay off, you know, don't stop booking sellers so much. Yeah. Um, I mean, Itmar ended when Tommy Hanley died in 49. And then it was the Itmar slot was taken by Razor Laugh, which was Seller's first. It wasn't his first ensemble comedy, but it was his first regular comedy series yes. uh, that, he, that he was in until, what, 54, I think? It was on that? Yeah. It, it, that ran for a long time, didn't it? Mm. Razor Laugh. Yeah. So you're not, I mean, I know you're not particularly. Um, a huge goon fan, um, but you must have had some exposure to them growing up to, or to spy. Oh, yes. I mean, uh, yes, I, I was probably just, I, I remember them very 
very well, but probably it was repeats by then because I, th- I think it fin- didn't it finish in when did it finish? 59 or something? Uh, or? January 60. 60, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I know, yeah, I was probably a bit young to, to hear them live, but they, they started repeating them pretty much immediately, I think. And the, uh, you know, I remember it, it, it being on. Mm. And, um, uh, but I, I, yes, I suppose I, I, I'm, I'm very interested in the, in the period and, and how that show came to be made. And it was irreverent in, in a, you know, but not in a sort of satirical way, really. Well, it, it uh, um, in the way that that perhaps Hancock was, yeah. You know, um... Well, yeah, you say that. Um, one of the things that I'm finding doing this podcast is because I'm I'm re-listening because I used to listen to the Goons as a teenager to an obsessive level, to a dangerously obsessive level, and then I sort of eased off and moved on to other things as I you know as I left my teens. I'm now in my late forties. And I've been um, re-immersing myself in in the, the Goon Show and re-listening to the shows. But I've, I've been re-listening to the fully restored versions, where a lot of the deleted material that had because they the the edited versions of the shows were the ones that were typically um, repeated or sent out to overseas radio stations, mm. and they would remove topical references and racially insensitive references often although not always uh but it's amazing listening to these fully restored shows how much topical stuff and how much satirical stuff spike and 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 you know larry and his other co-creators put into the the shows you know hello calling satellite seagoon Don't, don't, oh, Seagoon, don't worry, I beg of you. A rocket is on its way to bring you down. Hold on. Well, turn to Ollie. There's a dog up here nipping at my heels. I, I did some um, presenting for um, Four Extra. Uh, um, you know, they, mm. they do a, a whole evenings of, of sort of vintage comedy shows. Yeah. And um, I found that this presenting job was actually quite a lot... <laughs> more work than I thought it was going to be because I thought I was just going to introduce the shows and then 28 minutes, put my feet up and then, <laughs> then rise another link into the next show. But yeah. some of these vintage comedies, I had to have so much cut out of them that some of them were running at about 12 minutes. So I <laughs> would have to make up sort of 16 minutes of linking. <laughs> so I... I sort of gave up, utterly exhausted after doing about four of these, four of these nights of, of vintage comedy. Um, I, I, I'm not sure there was a producer whose job it was um, to take out all the all the contentious stuff, and it was mainly Goons and um, Round the Horn. Yeah, the, yeah, those were the two shows that were that, that were cut. There were there were other shows that were, <laughs> which just they didn't bother to write very very much of a script so it, it sort of ended uh, <laughs> after about 20 minutes so, but um but the, the certainly the goons and and round the horn would now have to have a a, a great deal taken out um i mean they, they were woke times in other in other respects because there was this thing called the green book the bbc yes. green book with with a list of things that you weren't allowed to do and um 
it, you know, they're some of them are quite odd. You know, things you um, you weren't allowed to say. Um, no politics at all. You were never allowed to do any impressions of of anyone. No, you couldn't. Um, uh, you couldn't. There were things you couldn't refer to, like lodgers or commercial travellers. Yes, that's right. And and uh, and you weren't allowed to use the phrase "winter draws on." No, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Uh, and you, you, yes, yes. So nothing that sort of uh, appeared to approve of drinking. So you you wouldn't be allowed to say, "Let's have one for the road," uh, because it, it would encourage alcoholism. Um. And, and not only no jokes about politics, but you, you couldn't have a politician on the show. You couldn't have an MP on the show because it would it would be um, undignified for a member of parliament to, to take part mm. in a comedy show. So, mm. you, I mean, uh, I don't suppose it was a problem that often. I mean, it would be now because a lot of MPs appear on comedy shows, don't they? But, um, so you always had to have the uh, per- permission of a person if you're going to do an impression of them, which sort of pretty much ruled it out. And um, but then there were things suddenly the addition of it that I've got, which is 1949. Uh, there's there was some good news because you could now say um, nylon and <laughs> zip and thermos, which I think thermos. prior to yeah, thermos <laughs> prior to 1949, that was that you know, you just couldn't do that. Um, so it's quite weird, aren't they? I, I interviewed, do, do you remember um, the great um, writer of the old witch farces, Ben Travers? Yes, um, yes. Yeah. And um, he said that and in those, when he was working, you, you'd have to go to the Lord Chamberlain's office to present mm. your script and some, you know, retired brigadier general uh, would um, make you change things, you know. To, um, and... Um, Ben Travers said that he, uh, there was a scene where somebody, it, it was set in a sort of changing room, uh, sport, sports changing room, this scene, mm. Mm. and um, a bloke went, uh, one of the characters went to get a, so I'm just going to get a towel. And um, the, the Lord Chamberlain's office said, uh, well, you have to take that out, page 48. What, what, what's wrong with the towel? Uh, and Ben Travis said, what, what, what's wrong with the towel? And I said, oh, come on. I was born yesterday, you know. Take it out. <laughs> so he said, all right, of course, yes. But he thought, well, you know, what had happened in this guy's life that um, yeah. made the reference to a towel so, such an inflammatory thing? Well, maybe so they, they maybe, were all he, kind of, maybe he, in, in, as a younger man, he was getting his bare buttocks flicked by towels. In the but it days. must be something on those lines, <laughs> must not it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's it. Yeah, I think you got it there. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> one of the things when you and I were communicating about coming, you coming on the show, you made a fantastic point that I hadn't thought about until you pointed it out, is you said that the 50s, just paraphrasing you here, the, the 50s was the only decade in, in modern British comedy in which the officer class didn't really figure. Yeah, yeah. I, I, they were They were sort of figures of fun but it was just this this incredible outpouring of talent that came from serving soldiers dur- during the war that you know they kind of claimed it they <laughs> claimed the territory yes and, uh, um I, I suppose they were it's not that it was all it was all sort of 
working class knockabout comedy. Well, you know, some of it was really sophisticated. And if you think of um, Muir and Norden's work on Take It From Here, mm. some of it was was really quite literary. And, and it, because it went on for rather a long time, Take It From Here, um, for, for people of my generation, it, um, um, the keynote singing the theme tune, you know, uh, for Take It From Here, it was slightly depressing, sort of um, reminded you of, of sort of overcooked lamb and crinkle cut <laughs> carrots, you know, and that. Uh, and, but actually, when I, I, I ghosted June Whitfield's autobiography, and she was in oh. Take It From Here for, yeah. for many years. And so I thought, well, I better get to grips with this show that I've, I've never really liked very much. And I started looking at it and reading the scripts. And I thought, this is so good. And it's, it's, uh, it's clever and it's literary. And there's a clear road leading to Monty Python of sort of literary, surreal, mad humour. Um, it, 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 even though sort of Muir and Norden were um, were part of that um, generation of of people who'd been in the in the war, they they were sort of as they all did. They sort of forged their own their own course. Yes, they kind of get overlooked. Galton and Simpson tend to get the 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 kudos that perhaps Muir and Norden don't so much. Yeah, yeah. But I was I was amazed when I was doing um, June Whitfield's mm. um, autobiography. I, I got some tapes of, of "Take It From Here," and and I was and my stepkids, who had very little interest in radio comedy, it's fair to say. Um, I just love these Ron and F, the Glums. Yes. In, uh, in "Take It From Here," I thought these sort of cool metropolitan kids. Laughing at the glums. Who who would have oh, thought well. it? Yeah. Do you remember um, Bruce Forsyth's failed show in the late seventies called Bruce's Big Night Out or something? Yeah, and they, they did it again. Didn't they? Yeah. they did with, uh, but it wasn't June Whitfield. It was Patricia Brake. Patricia Brake. Yes, that's right. Yeah, I think June was a bit upset that they didn't ask her to do it, and you know what? Obviously, quite a, quite a bit of time had gone by, and that, that's why they got they got. Um, somebody was the right age, but actually, I think it would have worked better if they just—I don't know—was Dick Bentley still still alive in the seventies? I'm not sure. I know. But um, you know, but, they did it with the carry-ons. Barbara Windsor was playing, you know, <laughs> playing the, uh, the 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 Juve lead. You know, yes. well into her fifties, I would say. You know, and, but that was part of the fun. Yeah, and yeah. so I think they they actually missed the trick there with not not bringing when they brought the glums back, not having June, uh, her mimicry uh, uh, and her singing, you know, she's always remembered as a, as a sort of Terry Scott's feed, you know, but I mean, she was absolutely brilliant. She could dance, she could, her sing, some of the records she made in the fifties, absolutely wonderful singing voice. And, um, and the mimicry was incredible. She was incredibly skilled. And all the voices she did on, <clears throat> on Take It From Here, and it was mainly because everybody loved the uh, the F Glum, the character that she played. But she she did many many others. She she based the the character of F on um, they had a they had a cleaning lady, 
uh, her and her mother. And that was her voice. And she, the, the woman never realised. And she, she sort of stayed in touch with June and, and followed her career with interest and, and particularly the Glums. And she'd, you know, she'd drop around and say, oh, I love the show. It's amazing, you know. People do really talk like that. I've met people who talk like that. <laughs> oh, I know, yeah. <laughs> well, June was June was involved briefly, tangentially with the goons, and well, she 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 appeared in um, the Idiot Weekly Price Tuppence, which was their first foray into television, ITV, yeah. nineteen fifty six. Yeah. And then, um, I don't know if you know about this. Just not long before he died, Peter Sellers made a a record well he, he put out a record called seller's market which was one of his you know comedy lps and i'm not can't remember if it was off the back of that or it was around that time that he recorded a song a comedy song in the character of uh fred kite from i'm all right jack so he was yeah. he was reprising that character in 1979 and he had june whitfield and that the the conceit was that it was uh, june whitfield was playing Margaret Thatcher. I think it was called something like What, a, what About the Workers? And it was just a satirical comedy song. Okay. And June Whitfield does a very good Margaret Thatcher on it. Um, and it was due to go out, it was due to be released, or it was due to go out on the LP. And then Sellers had it removed. And, and we don't know exactly why, but the theory is that Thatcher had just got into power. And Sellers was hoping for a knighthood. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, she said she had a... a um, you, you remembered it more clearly than, than me, but uh, um, she said she had, just had a very nice time in Paris because she went out there to record it and Sellers mm. wasn't ready, so she had a day's shopping. <laughs> and then the next day he wasn't ready, so they had a day's sightseeing her and her husband, Tim. So uh, she had quite fond memories of it. But I... <laughs> I said, I said, I said, I did question her about it. I said, what was, what, you know, what was he like? And all she would say was, he was all right. I was like, I couldn't really do much with that. No. Yeah. <laughs> are, you, are you, were you more of a Hancock fan or did you not have a particular? I, I, I suppose, yes. I mean, I, I, I sort of um, uh, fell into doing radio comedy, really, just sort of through my, friendship with with andrew and uh, and then later with nick newman and um yes I, i'd always sort of worked in in theater really and and um and obviously as an actor in tv as well but um so i didn't i didn't have a a childhood where i was i was avidly listening to um all the latest radio comedies and i i, I still don't really but i i'm I'm just interested in that in that post-war period because this new wave of of comedy writers and, and performers. I just think it's uh, such an interesting time. And you know, after the in the sixties when the 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 gentleman from Cambridge took over comedy, mm. um, it, it all changed. Uh, um, but there was this this time in the fifties where it was. Uh, I don't know, it was like sort of uh, Shakespeare's time or something when anybody could just write stuff and, you know, you didn't, you didn't have to have gone to Cambridge. Or, uh... You mentioned about Cambridge. I know that you were up in Edinburgh, what, early 80s? Around yeah. the time of the first Perrier Award. 
I believe. Yeah, uh, um, we it was the first Perry Award, and and our show, which was it was a sort of sketch show called Theatrical Digs, um, yeah. and um, we came second in the Perry Award. The the winners were Stephen Fry and Emma Thompson, Hugh Laurie, with their their uh, sketch show, and um, and we came second. And the first prize. Um, was a week at the uh, New End Theatre in Hampstead. And the second prize was, it really was two weeks at the New End in <laughs> Hampstead. So they did their week and we did, we did two weeks. <laughs> I, although I, I sort of came late to it, it, it because my, um, my parents, both my uh, mother, father and stepfather were all in, uh, the same business and um so i did I, I i was sort of immersed in it from quite an early age and my stepfather actually worked he was um he was a resident stage manager at, at the um fortune theater where they used to record the hancock episodes all oh, right and so he worked on on oh many dozens of uh, of hancock radio shows right and uh and i was having lunch with him once at the Nell Gwynn pub in Drury Lane and he said um we were just sitting on one of the sort of red velvet benches and uh he said oh I remember sitting here in exact exactly this booth with with Hancock and Galton and Simpson when they were we used to do the recordings oh. and presumably they did them on Sunday because the theatre was dark on Sunday I don't know yeah um and um I said what it what oh god I didn't think you never told me this what <laughs> what was it like you know what was they like what, what, what did they talk about? And, and he just said, well, they just moaned about money. And um, <laughs> that, that was the one thing he didn't need to tell me because I, I just could have guessed that. You know? <laughs> um, but he also worked on the army game and uh, Messmates, I think it was called, was the Navy version of that. And I remember going to his studio, seeing him pouring a bucket of flour over someone's head, Ted Loon or somebody probably. Mm. And uh, then he, he became a, a TV director. So when I was a child, I saw all these shows that, that he made um, being recorded. And in fact, I, I actually, um, I suppose my first job was when I was about eight and I worked the roller captions for a TWW show called Land of Song, which was, um, it was all in Welsh. And it was a musical show that used to go out on Sunday night. And in those days, you, you either had to, if you wanted a show that went out on Sunday night, either had to be religious or musical. So they got around it uh, that way. So it, it had all these vast numbers of viewers because it, it wasn't religious. It was the only show that wasn't religious. And I, I worked the, the roller captions on the, on the end of that. Right. Uh, and <laughs> so, because uh, I mean, you know, they, they, but my mother was the stage manager on it, and my stepfather was directing it. So I, I just went and sat in the studio all day, and that, you know, they got me doing things. So I suppose I was sort of immersed in showbiz from quite an early age. Yes. I sometimes the the um, you when we're making radio shows, you if it gets a bit sound effecty you like with footsteps or something is and i was saying this thing i'm working on at the moment i was saying to my producer um jane morgan um 
I've got a scene where there was a, a woman going up and down the steps and uh, she needs to do that for the plot. She needs to deliver a letter. And I said, oh, maybe we don't, we don't need to actually play this in real time because it's a bit like the goon show uh, up and down the steps, you know. And she told me that she was, um, did spot effects for radio programmes in the 60s. Okay. And um, she had been taught by the person who did spot on, on the goon show. And uh, I imagine there were several of them. Uh, yeah. I, I don't know, but yeah, I mean, because it, it ran for so long, it probably wouldn't have been just one person. But the, there was one person who was at, at, obviously had a, a rapport with Milligan because when it said, you know, the character has to climb 5,423 steps, he would actually do that. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, Min. Let's go up the top and trim the wicks. Come on, Min. Oh, dear. No, Min. Uh, a scriptwriter named Spike Milligan gave me two guineas to take a long time walking up these steps. <laughs> he said it helped him in his work. <laughs> yes, I know. Oh, now, Min, light the wicks. Never mind about them, Min. Pull the blinds. We don't want people looking in at you. <laughs> if they see this light on all night, Min, they'll think we've been having sinful midnight Ludo parties. <laughs> Was that the first sort of comedy sound effects? They weren't. They weren't aiming for verisimilitude, were they? And then the good no. sound effect. It, it was part of the show, wasn't it? And it, it had to sound right. It had to be funny in its own right. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you know, there'd been pretty bog standard sound effects prior to the goons. Uh, footsteps on gravel, things like that. Door opening and shutting. And then, yeah, Spike was asking for increasingly asking for more and more outlandish sounds and very often you know the, for the sound of a door knocking he'd have he'd want he'd, the script would say a telephone rings and that's the sound of a door knocking you know yeah. he'd, he'd play with the the form yeah yeah, yeah. um yeah. and of course towards the end of the Gunshu run they started using the radiophonic workshop guys so yes. they were getting more and more sophisticated sounds yeah. um you talk about the sound effects um as you know i was speaking to margaret caborn smith recently um, yeah. about um, her part in the, the play about Spike and she plays the spot effects lady in that. Yeah, um, that, 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 that's right. Yeah, we, we, Nick and I, um, we wrote a treatment for, we wanted to do a, um, a sitcom set in Nelson's Navy. Yeah. And um, because we'd, we'd just been doing a, a show called Mastering the Universe with Dawn French, yeah. um, we had this sound effects 
um, person called Alison McKenzie, who's um, been doing it for quite a long time. And in fact, she's done spot on Ed Reardon and Beauty of Britain and probably about a, a hundred shows that I've, hmm. I've written. And um, so Nick and I wanted her as a cat, not, not her specifically, but a, a spot effects uh, person as a, as a character. We just thought it was a good character. And so he, he I noticed he did it in um, his Spike Milligan play. Yes. And I also did it in my Tristram Shandy adaptation. <laughs> so the idea in my Tristram Shandy one was that the Simon Russell Beale playing Tristram Shandy it misses his flight from Corfu. So the sound effects person has to play Tristram Shandy. And um, so that is, so we've both done this, both done this character in slightly different ways. But when I first started doing play, radio plays as an actor, I was on the radio rep in, in the sort of early 80s, and we were still using the studios, the big radio drama studios at BH, and they were purpose-built with trays of gravel. One studio, B12, B13, I can't remember which one, had a drawbridge. So if you could have a, a medieval battle, that oh, in a, wow. a draw, how many plays need a drawbridge? But they, they, they had that there. And then steps with different kinds of boards and concrete. And there were some sound effects that were left over, I guess, from when the building opened in 1932, whenever it was. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> there was a car door slam, which was clearly an art deco design. It was a pink metal door on a, on a pink wooden sort of plinth, car door on a wooden plinth. So if somebody got out of a car in a radio play in the 1980s, slammed the door it would have been this this vintage sound effect <laughs> and some of them were you thought why are you still doing these you know why why don't you sort of make them sound a bit more realistic but i i guess it it, it took a while to change when when i with nigel planer we we wrote this um character called nicholas craig yes. who's an actor yep. we did radio series and um we wanted it to sound quite realistic and we recorded some bits, and and it really was they they get an old LP of a cat meowing, at, or something, you know whatever you wanted, and it, and it just sounded so antique, and so in the end the producer said just gave us a tape recorder and said well go away and make it yourself, which we did, and it I, I, ever since then I've tended to record things on location because I I just think it sounds a bit more realistic. Oh, just on that. Who does Algar, the cat? Yeah. That you? <laughs> we we hold auditions every every series, and yeah. um, I <laughs> I think the producer producer's kind to me. I I always seem to get the part, but um, I think I th I don't think it's entirely fair competition. I think Jenny Agatha did did a really good. I thought hers was actually those better than mine, but the producer. Loyally stuck to, to my meowing, <laughs> but I've got actually I've got as I talk to you now I've got um uh, do you remember the days of the the message board the Radio Four message board yes and um, I've got this this abusive message that a man sent to me called Habsing UA fourteen six two five four he was called <laughs> and and he said posted this message saying the bloody cat it only has one meow for every occasion two S's in occasion. Either hire an actor who can do cats or record a real one. It's embarrassing. 
<laughs> Poor Elgar having his lines mouthed by an idiot. So, so I've got that framed in my office. <laughs> <laughs> you tied um, the Radio 4 message boards into episodes of the show, didn't you? Because Stan used to write um, vaguely threatening messages in the show. Yes. On the, on, as, yeah, well, as they Wolverine. didn't last for very long, did they? And I think they, they probably shut them down because they were mainly just abusive, weren't they? Yeah. Mm. <laughs> um, uh, but, but yeah, but, I mean, they only lasted about a couple of years, I think, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And now everybody just does it on on Twitter. Didn't they? Twitter, that's right, yeah. that's right. But um, no, but listen, Christopher, thank you so much for coming, oh, no, coming you know, agreeing to, to talk to to me. And what have so you got? Obviously, you've got the um, the odd women. That's is that sort of in production now, or um, not? Not quite. I think it will be within the next month or so. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What What else have you got coming up? Um, that's it, really. That's it. Okay. There's talk of another another series of Ed, but um, yeah, I don't know when we when quite when we do that. Okay. I imagine Ed would not particularly have been a Goon Show fan. He, I, I fancy he'd have been more of a round the horn man. What do you think? Yes, I think I think that's right. Yes, I mean he would want it. Would never be as simple as that, you know. He there would be a an angle on it, I think, because you know Marty Feldman and bought him a pint or something like you know um, <laughs> yes it wouldn't be just a, uh, a straightforward affection he'd, he'd find the goons a bit tiresome i imagine yeah thanks again to christopher uh all 50 episodes so far of this podcast yes there are 50 now they're all available in the usual podcast places so please seek those out if you haven't already heard them in the meantime i will be back next week with another special guest until then take care of yourselves stay safe bye <laughs>